This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 20th. Today, Gordon Sondland testifies before Congress, the DNC chairman on the future of the Democratic Party, and how Red Hats changed political fundraising. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, With regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. So in this morning's public impeachment hearing, Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, he testified that there was a quid pro quo. Shane Harris, national security reporter. Does this mean that Sondland is drawing a direct line between Ukraine and the White House? Well, I think he was both in that moment when he talked about a quid pro quo uh, and later when he talked about uh, taking direction from Rudy Giuliani and someone saying that he was working at the direction of the president. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volcker and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians, and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. He was pretty unambiguous uh, in his opening statement, which he submitted for the record when he talked about there being a you know a quid pro quo with relation to getting a White House meeting uh, with the president. And he testified that later he came to understand that the issue of military aid was also hung up uh, or conditioned on the Ukrainians conducting investigations that the president wanted into Burisma, which of course is kind of code for the Bidens and also this issue of Ukrainian interference in the election. So time and again – even though his memory was sort of astoundingly uh, filled with gaps, um, he was making this collection back and saying, look, we weren't off on our own. We were working at the direction of the president, largely through Rudy Giuliani, his personal attorney. In response to our persistent efforts in that meeting to change his views, President Trump directed us to, quote, talk with Rudy. I don't know how you can read this other than Gordon Sondland saying, These were the president's wishes and we were carrying them out. Though I think that it's important to point out that Gordon Sondland kind of came into this hearing as sort of a loose cannon. So, Shane, can you remind us like who he actually is 
and why the credibility of his testimony is kind of complicated coming into this? Sure. So he is the ambassador to the European Union. Um, Before he got this position, he was a hotel developer and still is, uh, largely in the Pacific Northwest. But coming into this testimony today, the reason why people weren't sure sort of which way he was going to attack and, frankly, which party might find him more of a useful witness is because he has had to make amendments or additions to testimony that he gave behind closed doors in October. And specifically, what he had to do was really quite significant. He had to make an additional statement that uh, he did, in fact, communicate to a senior official in the Ukrainian government, the aide to the president, in fact, that unless the Ukrainians made an announcement, formally, publicly made an announcement that they were going to investigate Burisma, which of course means the Bidens, uh, and the alleged 2016 election interference, that they were probably not going to get the military aid that they so desperately wanted. So this kind of looks like a quid pro quo. And when Sundland has to come back and say, oh, there's this thing that I forgot to tell you, but now my memory has been refreshed by hearing these other witnesses who are talking about something that looks like a quid pro quo, I want to put that in the record. And, you know, he's not just sort of doing a good deed when he does that. The committee is giving him, I think, a chance to amend that testimony so that he's not then facing a charge of giving a false statement to Congress. So he's coming in today already having not completely told the full story. And I think that really raised a lot of questions about whether his testimony was going to be reliable and, frankly, how each side was going to handle this person who might give contradictory information, might not be able to fill in some gaps, and whose credibility could quite easily be tested by either side. But then it became pretty clear pretty quickly that this was going to be a witness that was going to be very good for Democrats and very problematic for Republicans, including the fact that he said that he was working on the orders of the president via Rudy Giuliani, but also that there were many other people in senior positions who were involved and aware of what was going on. This email was sent to Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Perry, Brian McCormick, who is Secretary Perry's chief of staff at the time, Miss Kenna, who is the acting, pardon me, who is the executive secretariat for Secretary Pompeo, Chief of Staff Mulvaney, and Mr. Mulvaney's senior advisor, Rob Blair. A lot of senior officials. Right. There is a line that came from the early part of the testimony that really, I think, is going to stick out and be remembered, which was... Everyone was in the loop. Everyone was in the loop. He even mentions uh, in one part where he talks about... Uh, As late as September 24th, Secretary Pompeo was directing Kurt Volker to speak with Rudy Giuliani. In a WhatsApp message, Kurt Volker told me, in part, spoke with Rudy per guidance from S. S is the State Department's official designator for the secretary. Spoke with Rudy per guidance from S. I mean, it was very clear. Sunland presented as somebody saying, essentially, I'm not getting thrown under the bus by anyone. I am going to name names. I brought text messages with me. I brought uh, records of these conversations. And then also made two other important points, which was there's lots of other records I would like to have that the State Department refuses to release and the White House won't release. So he put it back on them to say, hey, you're making me come in here and testify to what I remember without the benefit of notes and records that you won't release. And he said that he was blocked from accessing his own emails. Right. I mean, just just the, the emails that he previously sent are things that he's not allowed to refer to. 
Right. He comes in and says at the outset, this process isn't really fair because I don't have access to these communications. My lawyers and I have made multiple requests to the State Department and the White House for these materials. Yet these materials were not provided to me. And he says also, too, says, I'm not a note taker. Lots of people are. I never have been. Talking with foreign leaders might be memorable to some people, but this is my job. I do it all the time. Uh, There were even moments where uh, text messages were shown to him that he clearly wrote, though. And he said, well, I guess if that's what I wrote, then it's probably true. So even when confronted with his own words, he sometimes expressed hesitation about whether he could actually say, you know, attest to the fact that, yeah, I said that or wrote that. That is a a July 19th email. Um, And who who is this from? It looks like it's, is it from me? I don't know. It's from you, I believe. Yeah, it's from me to to the group. So this was kind of a pattern that uh, for Sundlin, where on the one hand, he's criticizing the administration for not releasing the records to refresh his memory, but on the other hand, seems to be demonstrating that his memory is really unreliable. I think it's worth pointing out here that President Trump this afternoon made a statement about this saying that he doesn't actually even know Sondland very well and that he hasn't spoken to him much. He finally gets me. I don't know him very well. I have not spoken to him much. This is not a man I know well. Seems like a nice guy, though. And Vice President Pence put out a statement denying some of the testimony. So it seems like Republicans are really trying to push back against that. Yeah, they really are. And it's it's worth noting, too, that while... The president came out and said, I hardly know the guy, and he has said this before. That is not what Gordon Sondland said. Gordon Sondland said he knows the president quite well. He talked about the fact that they had talked on numerous occasions, um, that he was comfortable enough with the president to use profanity. You confirmed to President Trump that you were in Ukraine at the time and that President Zelensky, quote, loves your ass, unquote. Do you recall saying that? Yeah, it sounds like something I would say. (laughs) That's how President Trump and I communicate, a lot of four-letter words. In this case, (laughs) three-letter. So, you know, these are two wildly opposed views of what this relationship is about. And there is even this moment where it becomes clear that Sunland is not going to be the witness that Republicans may have hoped for. And Stephen Castor starts to really question his reliability. Stephen Castor, the GOP counsel. You don't have records. You don't have your notes because you didn't take notes. You don't have a lot of recollections. I mean, this is the, the, like the trifecta of unreliability. Isn't, isn't that true? Well, what I'm trying to do today is to use the limited information I have to be as forthcoming as possible with you and the rest of the committee and as these, you got a sense at this point that um, he was not going to be somebody who was a layup for the GOP and that the White House already with their talking points was trying to both distance him from the president and emphasize various points where he said things that they felt was exonerating of the president, which was probably a stretch in itself, but really focused on that and kind of ignored everything else that Sondland had said. So why is Gordon Sondland doing this? Like, Why is he basically throwing Trump and other members of the White House under the bus? It's a good question, and it's obviously we can't get inside his mind. But I think if you're looking at the layout of things right now as we are kind of in the the thick of this impeachment hearing, the White House has been pretty clearly signaling for a while that they're looking for a fall guy. 
and Gordon Sundland could potentially be that person. Uh, I think he had two pressures coming to bear on him. One, he had not given complete testimony when he went before Congress the first time. Uh, so he needs to be forthcoming now because he already has uh, the, the threat of them coming after him for false statements potentially. But also I think he can see the way people are kind of lining up and taking sides and narratives are changing. And I think he was not going to be um, taken in by this. This is somebody who uh, has never worked in the federal government. He's had ambitions for national politics for much of his life, we understand. He gets this job and finds himself right in the thick of an impeachment. So unlike some of the other witnesses that we've seen who still have a career in the federal government or might be looking at a career in Washington, D.C., Gordon Sundland, I think, is thinking about going back home and has got to you know, salvage his reputation and not be made the scapegoat for what he clearly believes was a policy that was precisely what Donald Trump wanted. He was, you know, Sundland says this, looks at this and says, I'm doing my job uh, and probably feels uh, that he doesn't want to be thrown under the bus for that. Shane Harris, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's an important time for the presidential campaign to find its way through Atlanta. We are in Atlanta this week, where the fifth Democratic primary debate is happening on Wednesday night. And walking around, it feels like we've been tripping over presidential candidates. Uh, that we're going to be talking about at the debate, but also uh, in 2020, and especially here in the state of Georgia. This election is all about the future of our country. There will be 10 candidates on stage at this debate. There are even more candidates that are still in the running. And some voters are starting to feel overwhelmed. There are just so many people that's making it very hard for the candidates to stand out and show what they're really about. The entire process is just, it's losing its luster with me. So we asked the guy whose job it is to make sure that one of these many candidates becomes president. Tom Perez, the chair of the Democratic National Committee. I think that thinking back to the beginning of this campaign, you know, we started out with a huge amount of Democratic candidates for president. And I think the expectation was that that was going to get winnowed down pretty rapidly. But here we are, three months before Iowa, and not only are there still 10 candidates on the debate stage, more of them running, but also people announcing that they're going to run. You have uh, Deval Patrick, former Massachusetts governor, announcing last week. You have Michael Bloomberg, New York City mayor, who is apparently thinking about it. So what do you think that says about the state of the primary right now? Well, we have a deep field is what it says. And we have the most diverse field in the history of our country. And that's who we are as Democrats. I'm proud of that. Our job at the DNC is to make sure that everybody gets a fair shake. I, I welcome a large field. What it, what it shows is that there's remarkable enthusiasm, remarkable energy. Well, one could say that that is enthusiasm, but you could also call it 
confusion for a lot of people who say, I've seen so many of these candidates. Some of them I can't even keep straight. They keep coming on the debate stage and then there are two different debates. And I am struggling to kind of prioritize who who my person is. Do you think that those criticisms are valid, that that for, for people, even engaged people, that it's hard to make decisions, hard to understand what the real differences are when there are so many different candidates? Well, Act Blue, which is the engine that grassroots uh, donors use to invest in political campaigns, their best hour of the third quarter of 2019 in terms of fundraising was the second hour of the September debate. Hmm. That is another bellwether of the enthusiasm that's out there. Uh, we see the same thing at the DNC. Our, our grassroots engagement is uh, going up dramatically. And and again, this is a, in part a function of the fact that folks are enthused by candidates. I mean, the, the if we were having a discussion about it, the apathy that people feel toward candidates, then I'd be sitting here very worried. I think people have a real, uh, I, I want people to fall in love. I want people to date various candidates. You can date <laughs> multiple candidates simultaneously. And wow. at the end of the day, we have to appreciate, and I think voters do, that if we want to govern, we must first win. So I want to talk a little bit more about this particular debate. It is taking place at Tyler Perry Studio, which is in southwest Atlanta, a part of Atlanta that voted overwhelmingly for Stacey Abrams uh, when she was running for governor for the Democratic candidate. But the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that you all were seriously considering putting the debate in Sandy Springs, a suburb of Atlanta, more of a swing area, a place where more moderate Republicans who would consider voting democratically where they live. What was the calculus in not choosing that option? Well, a big part of the challenge when you're trying, and I learned this, uh, I'm learning this a lot right now, trying to get uh, venues in November and December the biggest challenge is availability. So this is just because, like a purely logistical uh, thing and not like a are, metaphor for... I mean, you, you, I mean the nutcracker, uh, <laughs> things like that. I'm not kidding. I mean, like there All the were places you wanted to we use were, were already uh, booked by November the nutcracker? In December, there were, well, we can't do that. You have Disney on ice. You have the nutcracker. You have a lot of logistical challenges. Here's the reality. Our choice of, of uh, Georgia as a venue is meant to send a very clear signal that we can compete here. But is there a concern that folks who live in the suburbs of Georgia and, and folks who live in more moderate suburbs generally, that they're not kind of getting that message from the Democratic Party? When the announcement was made about this venue, you had a Sandy Springs city councilman say that he was disappointed that it wasn't in the suburbs and kind of took it to mean a more symbolic gesture from from the Democratic Party. Well, let's again review the chronology of our debates. Where was our last debate? It was in suburban, or one could argue, exurban Columbus, Ohio. Why? Because Democrats are winning the suburbs. And so when you look at the broad quilt of the choices we're making, number one, we're showing that we're expanding our map. Number two, we're showing the importance of urban areas and uh, suburban areas. And again, I would uh, uh, commend to the, the person from Sandy Spring, which is a wonderful community, where we were last month. Because where we were last month was quite literally the type of community that uh, he is uh, speaking about. What do you think makes an effective debate? I think discussing the issues. Uh, Democratic voters, I, I think voters writ large don't really want to hear about hand size. 
They want to hear about healthcare. <laughs> they want to hear about your vision for an America that works for everyone. They want to hear about what you're going to do about climate change. Let me ask a little bit more about that, because when we put to listeners of our podcast what they wanted to hear from you, I was surprised by the number of people who said there's not a debate exclusively about climate change, and I feel wronged by that, and that there was a pretty significant amount of activism around that, and the DNC came out and said, no, we're not doing that. So why why were you so adamant against having a debate about climate change? Well, point number one, climate change is real. It's existential. You look at where we've what we've done so far in this uh, debate cycle. Uh, climate change has been discussed in, I think, every debate except the most recent one where impeachment uh, was a big topic of discussion. Uh, CNN has held a seven-hour climate forum. MSNBC has held a climate forum. And we will continue to talk about climate change. So there's been unprecedented attention to it. I was asked by roughly 40 groups representing probably 15 issues to have a debate exclusively on their issue. Hmm. And so what do I say to the mothers of the movement here in Atlanta who've lost a son to gun violence? They want a debate on the public health epidemic of gun violence that only touches that. What do I say to the you know, parents of um, immigrants uh, who were you know, in cages you know, about immigration reform? That it's a slippery literally, slope that you can't, you can't do this for everyone. When I say that we have received requests from 40 different organizations reflecting roughly a dozen issues, and the issues, what they all have in common is these issues are really important. So several of the candidates that are leading the polls for the Democratic nominee, they've completely sworn off super PACs and, quote unquote, big money in their fundraising. At the same time, Democratic candidates and the DNC, they're being hugely out fundraised by Trump and by the Republican Party. So do you think that there's still a place for, quote unquote, big money in the Democratic Party? Well, let me let me give you the facts and figures about fundraising, because I think there are a lot of myths. In the third quarter of this year, uh, the DNC and the Democratic candidates for president raised $500 million. The RNC and Trump raised $311 million. And but they so, started out with a lot more money. Well, I, I mean, again, they have a lot more rich people. The goal is never to raise uh, dollar for dollar what the Republicans did. Each candidate, him or herself, will make judgments about how they raise money. And that's going to be for the voters to decide. Well, I guess that's my question is that it feels like this has become something of a purity test for candidates. Do you feel like that is that is fairer to ask of candidates, eschewing the, the rich people? You know, at the DNC, we've, we've passed resolutions uh, setting forth that we don't raise money from entities whose values are inconsistent with the values of the DNC. And we've uh, absolutely kept to that. So we don't take money from fossil fuel companies, uh, uh, for instance. And each candidate moving forward is going to have to make uh, judgments about what's in the best interest of, of his or her campaign. Do you think that we are ever going to go back to a place where big money is a welcome part of Democratic campaigns? You know, we have a lot. What I love about the Democratic Party is that we have a remarkable uh, diversity of interests. When I was at the uh, Labor Department, you know, everything I did when it was involving like the overtime rule, what they all had in common, the work I did, was we always worked together and we managed to work with uh, important players in the industry. And so the lesson I learned from that is that there are a lot of folks out there in um, 
corporate America who were really important and good partners. And, uh, and make no mistake about it, there's a lot of corporate greed out there right now. What I've always tried to do and what we're doing at the party is to make sure that uh, there's a place for uh, the big tent that exists. We can do all of this. And so we've engaged uh, a really wide array of stakeholders, and I'm really uh, appreciative of that. And I think the Democratic Party uh, can do that, and it's a welcoming environment. We're bringing together people who share our values, and those include people in corporate America. Those include uh, people in grassroots America. Uh, those include people who were born here, people who were born elsewhere. We embrace our diversity. Tom Perez is the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing. The baseball cap that transformed campaign fundraising. You've seen these MAGA hats. They're red. Uh, he wasn't wearing one of those hats, was he? Was he wearing one of those hats? With capital went. white letters that say, Make America Great Again. We'll get you nice hats. Maybe we'll make them green this time instead of red. You see them at Trump rallies with his supporters all wearing different versions of MAGA hats. This is the hottest thing out there. This hat, you can't get it. And you might see an ad pop up on Facebook or when you're browsing a website from a Trump campaign advertisement asking you to donate or pay for a MAGA hat. I'm Michelle Yehi Lee. I cover money and politics and campaign money. These hats can cost anywhere from like $25 to as much as $45. So where does your money go when you buy a MAGA hat? If you buy it from the campaign's official website, then it is a political donation to President Trump's campaign. And if you pay $25 for the hat, part of that might be going to actually purchase the hat and ship it to you. Part of it might be going directly to his campaign for other political purposes. President Trump's swag fundraising is huge. It's a really big part of his small-dollar donor base, people giving $25, $50 at a time. There are MAGA hats, mugs, beer koozies, pens. There are now plastic straws that the campaign sells, and people love it. They love being able to wear gear and T-shirts and carry items that really show their support for President Trump. You saw a lot of this with, for example, the Obama campaign, like the Hope posters and the the big O with the logo that everyone recognized. But when it comes to Republican fundraising, it's kind of new in terms of how much he's been able to capitalize on the pro-Trump, pro-swag support base to the point where other Republican candidates are doing the same. People running in Senate campaigns now, even Senator Mitch McConnell is selling uh, cocaine Mitch t-shirts and swag because they're seeing that if you can capitalize on this fan base that could form around you and get supporters who are willing to buy swag to show off their support for you, then there's a huge appetite for that. So President Trump has really changed the game in terms of Republican fundraising. 
Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tonight's Democratic presidential debate is co-hosted by The Washington Post and MSNBC. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Post Reports is here. And after the debate, we'll be doing a special episode of Post Reports with full analysis. That will drop early Thursday morning. We'll also have a regular episode on Thursday afternoon, covering the latest from the public testimony in the impeachment inquiry. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.